0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We broadcast live from the campus of Wharton, San Francisco, downtown here in San Francisco along the Abarcadero right next door to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Colum. And today, first, we'll be talking with John Sobel, the CEO and co-founder of Site Machine, the category leader in manufacturing analytics. We'll be talking about how digital technology is entering the physical world, what it's like to build and scale a technology company in this space. And we'll also be discussing some of the most pressing issues in this area. Um, then in our second hour, we'll hear from Tammy Sun, the co-founder and CEO of Carrot Fertility. They're working to make treatments like IVF and egg freezing cheaper and easier for companies to offer as benefits to their employees. So that'll be really interesting to yeah. hear about.
0: And we've got a sunny day. It's the first time it's That's been right. sunny and actually warmer in about the space of three or four weeks. So right, it feels, pounding. feels like spring. rain and snow. So for people who are just dialing in, um, the show is called Bay Area Ventures and we ps- we speak with uh, entrepreneurs and VCs and thought leaders here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I think we are catering to the commute crowd. We air every Monday <laughs> at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific and 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So for those people who are looking for something to do while they're um, stuck in a traffic jam, this is the place to be. That's
1: right. Hopefully, we're Um, making the ride interesting.
0: It was interesting. Before we began the program, Irina and I were talking about how long we've actually been doing this program, Mm -hmm. and we think we're rolling into the beginning of our fourth year now. Yeah. So, um, it's been interesting, because we we really get a chance to talk to a lot of very um, interesting, passionate, uh, engaged entrepreneurs and VCs, and it really... It's a way of staying abreast of, you know, fast-breaking developments here, principally for v- VC-backed companies here right. in the Bay Area. Right. <coughs> and we're also talking about, um, we're talking about recycling back to a year or two to guests that we've talked with before. Right. And in fact, our first guest is in that category. Right. And so uh, there's always a big risk about whether, you know, um, people have fallen on hard times or whether the... Uh, you know, the indicators keep going up and to the right.
1: Right, but it's interesting to hear how they've been... Um how the company's been growing. So, so we're ge-
0: taking a serious risk with our first guest oh, today. right, think, right. We'll yeah. see.
1: We'll see how it's going. Yeah. We'll, we'll learn more about it. We're excited. So to that end, uh, in the in the spirit of passionate in, uh, entrepreneurs, we're joined now in the studio by our first guest, John Sobel, the CEO and co-founder of Site Machine. As you mentioned, Site Machine a category leader in manufacturing analytics. We're going to learn more about what that means. Uh, in addition to his entrepreneurial experience, John has over two decades of experience in Silicon Valley working with new technologies. He's served on the management team of several companies in pioneering industries, including Tesla Motors, SourceForge, and in its early years, Yahoo. John, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here with you.
1: So we love to, um, you know, share with our listeners so they get, you know, a little bit of an idea of the entrepreneurs and folks who visit with us, a little bit about your background. So I'm wondering if you could share with us, you know, your journey as an entrepreneur um, and in technology specifically, and what led you to co-found Site Machine.
2: So I've been, uh, I've been with Site Machine for six and a half years uh i began my career as a lawyer and i worked for five or six years that's at, an
0: indelible stain <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know I'm, I'm gonna own it i'm gonna own
2: it and uh all kidding aside you know i was talking to some really interesting people um at ge a couple of years ago and they said lawyer or entrepreneur how how do you put that together what's up with that and you know i've thought about this a lot in a lot of fields what you do is you think about risk right and good lawyers and there are a lot of lawyers who maybe aren't the best um good lawyers think about risk and you cannot avoid risk in life. You cannot eliminate it. It's about choosing risk. Mm. Good entrepreneurs think about how to make something happen. And if they're thoughtful about it and you have to be to succeed, you're going to get rid of the catastrophic risk. You're going to give yourself a way to figure it out and survive and win risk management, choosing the right risks and working through them is, uh, common to both. And I had the good fortune early in my career. I was, a uh, Trying, trying cases and thinking about kind of complicated disputes for people, and I had the opportunity to go to Silicon Valley in the mid '90s. I started working in the hardware industry. Good time to be here. Yeah, actually. oh yeah. man, yeah, it was um early days. It was it was uh it was cool. It was uh there was a purity that I think we've lost as the technology industry has kind of exploded. Many of the people were very mission-driven back then, and there was a kind of a level of trust and you know, working together that was just awesome. And I went and worked for a great hardware company. I think the leader of that company may have gone all the way back to Fairchild Semiconductor. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was the
1: foundation for our listeners of Silicon Valley. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: John, you're a lot older than you look.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this guy was awesome. And I was there for about a year. And then I had the opportunity shortly after that to go to Yahoo, as you mentioned, in the early years. And it was, you know, I was like 200 people. And Friends were saying, why would you go work for a search engine? Nobody knows how that makes money. And, yeah. you know, the the kind of um, the excitement around democratizing information was what that was all about. Right. And I did that for five or six years. And then, you know, a couple of cool chapters after that, as you mentioned, I, I had the opportunity to work at Tesla and some other really interesting companies. And through the course of it, I realized, hey, the common denominator here is I keep ending up in these situations where there's a really cool new technology that's coming out the world's trying to figure out how to use it the way of thinking about that is common to all of these different industries and i was pretty good at helping companies kind of course correct and fix things that's what a good lawyer does and i had this feeling after going to school here at wharton you know i'd like to be part of building it instead of fixing it and
0: (laughs) get in front of the way yeah yeah, i mean
2: (laughs) you're going to be dealing with hard times (laughs) it might as well be of your own making and the uh (laughs) the the thing that that tesla really uh, that i was struck with was here was this great company trying to um change the way the whole automotive industry thinks and silicon valley is great at understanding what we do here we're not as great at understanding the way the rest of the world thinks and the rest of the world is now very hungry and curious about technology. If you can talk to both sides of the street, that's a, a really unique strength. And it is hard, and there's a lot of value around putting together kind of the real world and the virtual world. And um, Nate osten the guy who started our company, good friend, the best technologist I've ever met, called me up and said, hey, we're uh, we're putting together something to go take all the data in manufacturing and make it useful. And I thought this was a crazy idea. But I, then, it, you know, then I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, um, Internet has hit, information, real estate, stock market, on and on and on. It hasn't really hit industry yet. This would be cool if we could
0: pull this off. Well, basically, you're straddling both sides of the street, both the technical side and the real world side. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And And so we kind of got that. This was seven years ago. And we thought, okay, there'd be a really cool opportunity here. And... The guys who started the company were based in uh, southeast Michigan near Detroit. And we went to, for two years, we, we did what you're supposed to do with a startup. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. We went and figured out the problem. We told a lot of plants and just walked around and asked, asked uh, the plant leaders, where's the pain? What's the problem? Mm-hmm. And started putting together an idea for a product. And as you suggested, Doug, to do this, you need to have really elite technology under the hood. But here's the thing. The um, <laughs> factory leaders are great they ask you a very simple question. Does it work? Right. So, <laughs> so like it's <laughs> not cool. So the razzle-dazzle, right? does like, it work? <laughs> they don't like PowerPoint slides. They want to know, does it work? What's it do for me? And the thing that a startup has to do to survive that a lot of big companies don't quite feel the pressure on when they're innovating is you got to come up with value fast for somebody. If you are not able to look at a startup's product and go, hey, this helped me, it was worth this, and I need it, then that startup's not going to make it. And so that um, incredible urgency to figure out how to help these factories was a big part of our early years. And so Mm -hmm. here we are today, you know, we raised some money. We've been working with manufacturers all over the world. And, you know, it's just all part of a larger theme. If you think about what's going on with tech right now, technology is moving into healthcare, into farms, um, cars. You can think of as rolling computers that are all getting connected to each other. This marriage of the digital and the physical world is happening uh, across a bunch of realms, and it's fascinating.
0: So let me ask you a question. Um, you know, you're saying that you and your co-founder kind of spent the first couple years, you know, navigating around, talking to companies, asking what their pain points and their problems were. Is that was that? Uh, I guess I'm asking the question: Is that a worthwhile? two-year period for you? I mean, if you were going to do it over, here's the question. If you were going to do it over, would you have done it differently? No. Or is the gestation period of two years well, well served?
2: I, I really appreciate that question. There were times during those two years, and really, it, it, it continues. I mean, you're always learning. The thinking about startups is so right on. it. Uh, all the best thinking about startups basically says, look, a startup's job is to develop and test hypotheses about what people need and figure it out and, and build it for them. I don't see any way... That you could do without those two years and all the learnings that come after, or you would want to. There were times during that you know period. I mean, we had no money, nobody's getting paid. It's frustrating, and you're thinking, "Gosh, you know, I just want to get to the big game." But you must spend time understanding the customer. You gotta understand where's the gap in the market. I mean, let's talk about what a venture back company's supposed to do. We have, we have visitors from all over the world come to California, come to our offices, and it's great. We had a group from Germany the other day, very accomplished business executives. And they said, tell me what a startup's supposed to do. And we go, easy. Okay, here's the deal. <laughs> You're supposed to find a billion-dollar market uh, with, that has not been served. Easy, so, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let's figure that out. All the capital in the world, all the great companies, there's something that somebody overlooked that's worth at least a billion dollars. Then you got to take on you know, a lot of money, but compared to the giants that are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at these problems, not that much and then you got to achieve hyper growth on schedule. Okay. <laughs> That's <sounds> pretty <laughs> easy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I done, mean, yeah. you can say Sign that about down. any startup, right. any venture back startup. So the only way you have a prayer at doing that is if you understand the customer and what they need and how to get it to them better than somebody else. And the only way to get that is to go out there and get your hands dirty and just get out there and talk right. to
1: them. So then you're in the field for 2 years you and your co-founder Nate, right? So what did you what did you find? What did you find out? What did you learn and then I'm sure it was a lot. And then, what did you decide for Site Machine to take on? Sure. Yeah.
2: So there were a couple other people in the mix. Uh, there was a guy named Anthony Oliver who was the second uh, founder in the company, and he's perfect. He's uh looks like a lumberjack, about <laughs> six two. incredible hacker, software hacker, and he had spent five years putting robots in factories. And so a group of five, six, seven of us, all with this very eclectic background, a um, lot of manufacturing, a lot of Midwest, and then a lot of digital in the mix. We were going to these plants, and so. Here's what, we, we learned a couple things. First thing was, they have all this data. There's more data in manufacturing by a factor of two than any other industry in the world. It's
1: amazing. So
2: you hear good AI companies say, you know, data's fuel. is the raw material. Economists ran a great story a year or two ago about how data is the, the new fuel of the world economy. It's yeah. the oil of the 21st right. century. So let's just look at that. There's all this great raw material. Then you think about factories, and this was a very unexpected insight. They all want to know the same thing. If you're making cars, shoes, milk, electronics, the discipline of manufacturing is remarkably consistent. That's so interesting. And there's, yeah. these, there's these great, like, cult classics that many manufacturing leaders read. There's a, a famous book called The Goal, which is about how to think about manufacturing, really how to think about life. And the book is basically about finding bottlenecks in a system. What's the one part of the system that's making everything slow down? Because it's the slowest part. And fixing them. And so over a period of a couple of years, we realized, man, there's a lot of data here. Then the whole IoT thing came along. Everybody started talking about, you know, we're going to connect up the world and it's just going to work. And we realized, okay, they have all this data. They're dying to use it. They're spending a lot of money on digital transformation and initiatives to kind of become digital companies. Mm-hmm. And using that data in, a, in an effective way is really hard because in manufacturing, the data is more varied than in most environments. What does that mean? Yeah, so so big data. Um, big data is said to be three things. Volume, velocity, variety. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, the big and big data is there's a ton of data. Well, any big company today has limitless computing resources. They call up Amazon and say, give me as many servers as I need, no problem. Velocity, no problem. Variety is a really difficult problem.
1: Like tracking different things?
2: <coughs> like data you, have s- to, sources you have to of analyze data. it. You have to take the data in. Right. Exactly, and the thing is, you can go back and you can uh, you can see like a clock. The first analytics applications in technology were on kind of very well understood, structured kinds of data. We, you know, think about kind of what Oracle did back in the day. Right. You can study finance data. You can study data from mm-hmm. web logs. That stuff has a character and a structure that we know how to work with. Okay, right. then we get out into the physical world. It's a mess. You go into a factory, there's.
0: Uh, give me, give yeah, it, take an, an example, example. Sure. what's yeah. a use case. Yeah,
2: yeah, so here's the thing. Um, a single machine in a factory. You look at you got some machine. There must be some data. Right. There's probably six or seven hundred sensors on that wow. machine. Now some of these m- sensors are time series data, which a lot of people work with. Right. There might be on off data. There might be pictures. There might be alarms. There wow. might be data entered by operators. So now we dump all this data in a data lake. Everybody talks about data lakes right now. Mm-hmm. Let's dump all the data in a data lake, right? Okay. And then you have hundreds of companies out there going, "Okay, we'll just analyze it." But when you actually have to analyze this mess, it's all different. Right, it's completely different, and it's like you have
1: to find an underlying commonality or.
2: What you have to do, and and I think this doesn't only apply to manufacturing, but if we think about healthcare, for example, right. same problem. If I want to track the life of uh, Irina Yen as a patient through the healthcare system, there's going to be God knows how many different types of data from different places about you. Right, how do we make sense of this? Mm. So the kind of emerging insight across a bunch of companies like ours is. You actually have to change the data. You have to do something to it at a kind of fundamental level. This is the technology part of what we do. You have to restructure the data. You have to Mm. put it into a form that you can do all kinds of cool math on top of it. Mm. So everybody thinks, oh, you must have some crazy secret algorithm to understand these factories. It's mystical math. Our math is very good. It's very robust. We do machine learning, a lot of really powerful inferential statistics, but you got to get the data in shape. And you have to do it in a way it scales because mm-hmm. right now what most companies do they so here's the thing they all um a lot of companies brag about how many data scientists they have you'll see yeah. uh, xyz we, said, we have the- 800 yeah. data scientists working on this problem well nate you know our cto is great he says if you got a lot of data scientists working on it, it means you don't understand it at all that's <laughs> the problem that <laughs> <sense>. <laughs> you know if, if you really scale this kind of stuff you got a cadre of really good data scientists but something some piece of technology is doing the work to get the data in shape and then once you've done that you you can analyze it and we have all kinds of applications to visualize stuff and find patterns and basically it comes down to a couple things companies want to see what's going on they want visibility they want to understand Uh, why their process isn't working as well. So if you spend billions of dollars at a car plant in your equipment and you can make it go from 70 to 75% efficiency, that's hundreds of millions of dollars of value. And then they wanna understand quality. And and the kind of higher level of the game is to be able to understand all of this across a manufacturing enterprise or across a supply chain. The North American automotive supply chain has 5,000 different plants involved. (laughs) And they're all connected to each other, all sending stuff back and forth, but nobody can see what's going on. Let me pause here. For people who are just now
0: tuning into our program, we're talking to John Sobel, who's the CEO and co-founder of Site Machines, and we're talking about this marriage that straddles uh, between the technical side of data and the practical application of that data, however you slice it and dice it. So this is maybe a nice segue, John, into, you know, site machines is a company that has a specific purpose. And it, I guess the question that comes to mind is, is site machine a platform? Because with this common denominator that's Mm -hmm. defined by manufacturing that every sector has to work through, it sounds like you can plug, not plug and play. That's the wrong expression, but you can, you can address issues of every manufacturing organization. Is that an overstatement?
2: No. Um, my colleagues, uh, who uh, who started the company, were all from the Midwest, and I th- I think we avoided using the P word, the platform word, for yeah, many years.
0: There's there's a I mean, it used to be a cool thing to do. Yeah, we're we a just, platform company. We just never said it. And yeah. here, here's why. I mean:
2: there's like 300 IoT <laughs> platforms out there, and most of them don't do what they say they're going to do. And you know, again, I think I think people who've been in technology uh, for a long time understand this: the things that become platforms. Let's think about Microsoft Office. Let's think about Facebook. Right. They started as incredibly compelling applications that were built to scale horizontally. But you just nail the application part right. If you have sufficiently ambitious kind of scope, you become a platform. Mm. So we absolutely think of ourselves as a platform for manufacturers. But here's what I love about your question. Companies are really smart about this. Let's say you run a big manufacturing company. You might want a platform for your manufacturing data. You might want one piece of technology that helps you understand every factory, everything going on in those factories. But that's just the beginning. You're going to want to combine that data with data about design and engineering. Let's say you're making a car, and you got to think really hard about, how do I design this so I can make it fast and cheap? Mm. And then that car goes out into the world. you got all kinds of telematics coming off the car. You're going to want to marry that data from out in the field to production to engineering. Now let's put some financial information around it. What did everything cost? And Now let's tie it to our sales and marketing data. The really progressive uh, companies out there are thinking about putting all this together. So we, we view ourselves as a platform for production. But what we tell our clients is, whether it's us or anybody else you're working with, you should demand that all of this stuff plays well with all the other stuff. Mm. Because nobody's going to be a platform for everything.
1: So you have one dashboard that they can manage from and see the complete picture, if you will? Well, we give them
2: a very complete picture of what's happening in production. But what we also do, and this is uh, outgrowth of our open source roots, is say, hey, you own all the data. You can have all the process data. You can put it in your own visualization. And you can combine it with all this other data that you have because that's what they really want to do. They want to understand production, but then they want to keep – there's this great phrase. One of the venture firms in Silicon Valley, Wing VC, talked about synthetic data. Data that's been generated from other data. Oh, interesting. And repurposing synthetic data again and again and again. And and distilling it, presumably. Right. Exactly. And, you know, this is a very different paradigm. You know, kind of, th- this is one of those big, <laughs> maybe fluffy ideas, but we think it's very important. We say to our clients, listen, um, this is not the IT paradigm. This is not more software. We're not trying to take software and stick it into your plant. You've spent decades getting your software right Data is zeros and ones. It doesn't care where it came from, doesn't care who made it, it's zeros and ones. If we get the zeros and ones out and we can work with the zeros and ones and then make them valuable with other zeros and ones, that's actually a data paradigm. Wing VC came up with this phrase, data first. Data first way of looking at the world is very different than an application paradigm or an IT paradigm. Everybody thinks, oh my God, if, if I want to do something like this, I got to go uh, do two years and overhaul all my software and stuff. Right. Yeah. That's the beauty. Uh, No, you just got to get the zeros and ones out. Got to get them out. But
0: but let me challenge this. Sure. Because you're you're coming back. This is the vernacular of a platform play. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and that's a that's a risk because suddenly you're trying to boil the ocean. You you can solve problems for all kinds of companies, but at some level you have to actually walk in the door, whether it's a a dairy in New Zealand or an automotive company in Detroit, and you have to be able to look the leadership across the table in the eye and say, we can do stuff for you because we know the business. I mean, don't you have to demonstrate some level of specific knowledge that's relevant to their sector? You Mm. can't tell a dairy company in New Zealand that you just have, you just installed this kick-ass application in Detroit and man, they're going to love it.
2: (laughs) So uh, I'm going to just take that challenge head on. You know what? (laughs) Manufacturing is the vertical. It's not cars, it's not food, it's not electronics. Now, you're absolutely right to challenge me. Uh, the, The conventional wisdom which we bought into at the beginning is, Go hit a vertical, go deep, understand everything there is to know about automotive. Yeah. And then when you're done, take a half step sideways. That's right. a, there's a great case that, that you That's, the,
0: be, that's right. the beachhead yeah. uh, right. doctrine of Jeff Jeffrey Thomas. And, right? and you know,
2: yeah. yeah, everybody says that's what you should do. And that's what we thought we should do. That's yeah. why we hung out in At Southeast Bordy Michigan. Killer, right? yeah. 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 Now, but here's what we learned. We were a couple years into this and we started getting called. We got called by pharma companies. We got called by all these different kind of verticals. We're like, why, why is this happening? And here's what we realized. The vertical is manufacturing. The mm-hmm. discipline of making things, and it doesn't really matter what the widget is, is the same. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't just walk in. I'll give you a couple of kind of concrete stats here to, to, to make this kind of more um, digestible. It takes us about six weeks to uh, take in all the data Put up the application and start getting useful insight for sophisticated, complicated processes. We can do it in as short as a day or two for something simple. But six weeks is lightning fast in manufacturing. And the reason is because we're using the same piece of technology in the Mm -hmm. background, whatever the industry is. Now, to your point, Doug, we can't just do it remotely. We always uh, send somebody to the plant. If it's a partner of ours, a partner might go and study it up or us you have to know something about what's going on. There's this great phrase in manufacturing. It comes from um, um, uh, Japanese. It's the, it translated, the phrase is, walk the gemba. Okay, the gemba is a Japanese word for the manufacturing workspace. It's c- kind of like a dojo. If you go into a martial arts studio, you're not just in a place where you're doing martial arts. It's There's a sacredness to right, it. Right, right. And Japanese thinking is that, who is management to tell people how to improve stuff? How do you know anything unless you've gone to the workspace right. and you've been there and just picked it up and asked the people who are experts. So we always go to the Gemba and we, we ask a lot of questions, we try to understand what's important to folks, but we use the same piece of technology and here's where I'll, I'll, I'll take the challenge and I'll turn it right back. What a manufacturer wants to understand is fundamentally independent of what it is they're making. Uh,
0: quality yeah, is, is an yeah. issue, yeah. But you still have to walk into a plant Yeah, and you still have to spend time you have to roll up your sleeves and you yourself you have to get in there and talk to employees oh, talk yeah. to the leadership yeah. and then so the selling cycle for a single installation has got to be a fairly significant one
2: so that was another uh yeah let's let's get let's get um but i, I don't want to sink too deep into no. this because
0: i really want <coughs> i do i have another question sure. <laughs> i'm interested answer my first question okay. <laughs> selling cycle
2: is no different than any enterprise software cycle we track our sales metrics for a big deal at six to nine months mm-hmm. uh, if you're at oracle and you're doing a seven figure deal in 6 to 9 months. That's gold standard, man. Wow. It's the same. That's amazing. Now, you got to go there, you got to get to know the company, you got to qualify really hard. That was a lesson we learned yeah. every right now so everybody is like, I want to learn about this technology cuz I'm curious. And every company wants free learning. Right. Startups got to be ruthless about qualifying companies that are really ready. We stay in touch with the ones that are just getting yeah. started and yeah. they come back. So, sales cycles the same. No 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 big shake there. So, so let's
0: step back for just before we go to break here in about five minutes. Let's step back into Site Machine for people who are listening, like me and Irina. <laughs> <laughs> give us a snapshot of Site Machine. Like, where are you based? How many employees? Yeah. Uh, you know, how many rounds of financing have you sure. done? You have customers. Sounds yeah. like, I mean, just give us a snapshot so people can can calibrate on what the yeah. Company I'll give is you a,
2: a picture of the company. Yeah. Um, we are. Uh, about 60 employees based uh, in San Francisco with very strong operational presence in Michigan. The company began in Michigan. We've got uh, operations in uh, Taiwan, Tokyo. We are serving manufacturers in almost 15 countries right now, I think. And here's a stat on scalability. Um, We're in almost as many plants as we have people. (laughs) So think about that. (laughs) you know, say 50 plants right now, and it's growing really fast. It's yeah. uh, a good
1: ROI, right, per employee. <laughs> yeah, a good I a yeah.
2: I'm yeah. thinking about that. I, I yeah, mean, yeah. W- we get asked a lot, well, does your technology really scale, or are you guys a bunch of consultants? Because like, there's a lot of consultants that will mm. go work with data, and that, that's hard, important yeah. work, and is valuable. And we say, well, no. How could we scale to that level if we had to send five consultants to each plant? So we're growing quickly. You asked a little bit about the industries. We're in a, uh, maybe 10, 10 plus verticals now. Wow. And, um, you know, real kind of quick summary, the company started off selling this technology to plant managers. And what's happened in the last couple of years is that most major manufacturers uh, in the world have gotten very committed to digital transformation. That's kind of the buzzword right now. Mm-hmm. And so the leadership teams of these companies are saying, we got to get digital. The standard example is don't be blockbuster. Don't be blockbuster and get Netflixed. And and, and all these physical world industries are looking ahead going, Uh. you know, I don't just want to be better at making stuff. I might want to change my business model. You know, I might want to rent manufacturing as a service or have a bunch of small factories instead of big ones. And there's all kinds of pressures on manufacturers. The other thing is, you know, at a very high level, let's look at the last 15 or 20 years. A huge part of the world's manufacturing moved to Asia because of low-cost labor arbitrage. Now that's going away. China's looked ahead and said, you know what? We can't get people to work in factories for lower wages. There is a race for global leadership in manufacturing that's on. Hmm. If you think about American politics and our focus on manufacturing, we were the world's leader after World War II in manufacturing. Two of the great manufacturing economies in, in the world were in shambles, Japan and Germany they've both shown remarkable leadership in the last 50 years. Yep. Mm-hmm. Japan and quality, Germany and precision manufacturing and quality. And now China's come on the scene. Every major global economy has said, I want to lead in manufacturing. So, whoever can innovate the fastest, whoever can use data, there's all kinds of kind of operational benefit the stuff I was talking about, but these companies, these countries are all thinking very strategically and long-term about how to win in manufacturing. So, we find ourselves as a startup now a growth stage company, working with companies all over the world and, and getting into a very big game fast. It's yeah. been fascinating.
1: So you are at the nexus of all of this change as they're making digital transformation as a priority.
2: That's the really interesting part, Irina, is, um, you know, we've been talking tech. Like, you've got to have really good tech to do this. Right. But that by itself does not assure success. So we have a great dialogue now with, with these companies that we meet. We say, i tell you what, I know you want to evaluate, does our tech work? It works, we know it works, we can prove it. The interesting question is, will you be successful or not? And that's not about us, that's about you.
1: Exactly. Are you
2: ready to change? Are you interested in doing the hard work of bringing this kind of technology into your company? And it's been fascinating. In the last year, we've seen more and more companies that literally are bringing change management leadership into manufacturing, and the job of these people, and some of them come from places like Apple and so on, is to help manufacturing teams absorb digital technology in a way that works for them. So here it is, the people part of it is as hard or harder than the technology part. And and the startups got to figure out how do you how do you deliver this technology but how do you pick companies that are really ready to make these changes and then support them.
1: That's interesting. I would love to explore that more that you know, we're just thinking that it's a change management as much as it is a technology like enabling um opportunity for these companies um well we're going to break for a few minutes i'm irina yen my co-host is doug Collum. our guest tonight is john sobel ceo and co-founder of site machine we need to take a short break but please stay with us as we continue our conversation you're listening to bay area ventures on business radio powered by the wharton school on sirius xm 111 Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Collum, And we're talking today with John Sogol, the CEO and co-founder of Site Machine. And just before the break, we were talking about, you know, how SiteMachine is bringing digital technology to the physical world. But in addition to technology, there's a change management exercise involved with the company to integrate this technology and really to transform the company um, to embrace its technology. So... You know, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners is just to get a handle on you know what if I'm a customer or a client of Site Machine, what do I get that I didn't get before? Maybe a before and after. How are they doing this before, and what is Site Machine doing that's like so pioneering now? Sure,
2: sure. So um, today, if a machine breaks in a factory, this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. First off, there's usually this character we call this individual the shaman. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in the plant <laughs> who knows how stuff works. Right. And literally you see these guys that walk in, they'll put their hand on a machine. They'll say it's running a little hot. We're going to have a problem today. So they've been doing big data in their head for decades. It's uh,
1: <laughs> right. We anywhere, right? That's well ask played. Joe yeah. Joanna. Like, uh, what is that? Oh, he or she will know because right. they've been doing it for so exactly.
2: And you find these amazingly skilled people who have all this uh, information that they've developed through pattern recognition in their head. Now that's um, not always perfect. It's not always complete. It's local. It's hard to get that out of their head into somebody else's head. And when a machine breaks or there's a quality issue. So Six Sigma is this great discipline. We've all heard of it, right? Right. Six Sigma basically says, go do a bunch of hypotheses, test them, get the data, try things. There's a discipline called design of experiment and manufacturing where you literally come up with a hypothesis and say, here's why I think something broke. I'm going to go test it. I'm going to put the machine in failure mode. And this takes months. Mm -hmm. And it's very reactive and responsive to a specific problem and a specific hypothesis that's kind of the state of the art up to today right now bring somebody like Site machine in you're getting continuous comprehensive insight about what's happening first and foremost so literally we used to joke about it we'd call it factory tv you go home you pull up a url this is all on a browser you pull it up on your phone or on a computer and you got a screen that's showing you everything that's happening here's another really interesting dynamic it's accurate, impartial data that you, if you're lucky, rolls up onto a whiteboard once a week. and is That's self, what it was before? Yeah. It's self-reported. So there's all kinds of crazy incentives around hitting your goals and kind of how you classify things. Okay. All that goes out the window with this. You're getting continuous real-time data visualized, literally like little charts and pie charts That's and awesome. bars and this is working, this isn't working. Let's take a really simple example. Doug has a factory. Irina has a factory. You're both part of a uh, You know, the Wharton uh, Manufacturing uh, uh, Enterprise. And we have the same machines in your factories. But the machines in Doug's factory work at 82% and in Irena's factory, they work at 85%. Now, first off, it'd be very hard to know that that's actually happening today. Mm -hmm. Then we'd say, why? Now, with something like Sight Machine, you push a button and you say, show me everything that's correlated with the difference between Irena's performance and Doug's. Mm. And it all comes up and now you go, oh, wow. It looks like the operators in Irena's factory use the machines a certain way and they get much higher efficiency. We ought to make that a best practice across our company. Got it. Or, you know, Doug is a supplier of Irena's and Doug's been having quality issues. Can Irena count on Doug? Why? Why or why not? What's yeah. the problem? So, all of these questions wow. that come up again and again in manufacturing, you see it all on a nice little page. It's a web page. We, we can customize a little bit, we can change it, you can drill down to do all kinds of sophisticated stuff. And then you guys might have data scientists at your plants. Right Now I take all this data and go to work.
1: That's amazing. So, so before it was like a whiteboard rolling it in. People report with discrete pieces of information not making <coughs> the connections. And now what the technology Excite like machine does is you have a big picture across. It sounds like the factory t- TV notion, whether it's on the web, on your computer, mobile, it sounds like. Um, it sounds like it also has amazing revenue implications for these companies if they can gain efficiency or quality when we read about the news about quality issues at manufacturing or oh. safety issues, that sort of thing. I
2: mean, you're, just, you're, 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 you're spot on. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just a quick uh, vignette. We were at a company last week. Mm-hmm. And so first off, I always wondered when you sell stuff like, uh, you know, software for HR, people spend a lot of money on software for HR. It's good stuff. And I always wondered, what's the ROI? Like, how do you calculate right. that? And I asked somebody from a great company the other day, they said, said, damn if I know. You know, it's good stuff, we need it. (laughs) Manufacturing is totally different. Everything's algebra. So you literally know, hey, my quality last week was 92%, now it's 94%. Or you know, my machines were up this long, now they're up longer. So we were at a plant, and the CEO of the company turns to the the champion in the company who's been bringing digital technology into their company and says, this is 2,000% ROI. This is crazy. And I laughed and said, I'd lock that price in right now. <laughs> um, but that's the the beauty of this kind of... This, so the physical world is very um, concrete, right? It, and it's algebraic. And so if you can kind of put some data around what's happening and then show what happens before and after, it's absolutely amazing return. Mm-hmm. And so it's a fun thing to sell because it, you can de-risk it. You can say, look, if, if you don't like it, turn it off. But I think it's going to make a lot of money for you. Mm-hmm. So let me ask a separate question. So let's talk on the international scene. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. you say you're in uh, ten, ten countries. Uh, at least countries? ten. At least ten. Yeah. S- so, um, what kinds of? I mean, th- it's such a broad question. I want to narrow it. So, for example, there's different languages, different cultures. You have right. a lot of focus right now on China, and <laughs> you know this. You know, what's the? In, is there integrity around the intellectual property arena? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you go into Germany, it's precision uh, measurement and pre- precision manufacturing. Is there a cultural barrier you need to work through there? How do you guys? I mean, mm. that's you know, again, I'm I don't want to use the p word, not a platform company. <laughs> but when you're walking into these different countries, you've just expanded exponentially the complexity of the sale process, and you're taking this on. This is self-inflicted, right? I mean, it is. You could stay here in the U.S. Everyone speaks English. You know, you, there's a, no, I mean, maybe there's a time zone difference, but beyond that, you're good sure. to go. So, so, so again,
2: why, why are you doing this? Sure. <laughs> I own it. We're a platform. Um, <laughs> uh, I acknowledge it proudly. Uh, uh, here's the deal. There, there is a global culture of manufacturing. Mm. It's really interesting. So if you look at some of the big multinationals, uh, we were with uh, one of the largest automotive companies in the world the other day. They routinely move people around from Brazil to Europe to Asia. Yeah. These companies have a global perspective. And there is a global manufacturing culture. There are also global supply chains. Part of the reason we decided to just go out there and start getting footprint in all these places is the companies are unbelievably connected. Wow. There, are, there are companies in you know, every major industry in Asia, Europe, North America that are connected, Latin America. You've got to be able to play on that level. I, I love your point about culture. Um, one of the things that's been really stimulating for us as a management team most of our leaders are in their 40s or, or early 50s, and that's very unusual for a technology startup, for a real technology startup in Silicon Valley. Right. Many of us are twice the age of the <laughs> other kinds of people who right. get venture funding, but you need those dog years to, to understand, appreciate, and work through these cultural gaps, and there's, there's the digital industry gap, which may be the toughest one of all. And then there's real cultural dynamics. Even though there's a global manufacturing culture, the way people in Germany think about data and manufacturing is different than the way people in North America do. How so? Well, How so? Germany is um, extremely cautious around data security and data privacy, mm. and um, is also very proud of kind of the precision and quality of what they make. the The German aspiration, the the German government um, promoted a concept that's now very widely discussed called Industry 4.0. And what it fundamentally aspires to is a day when the machines talk to each other. Now, if you go to Japan, I shared the concept of the Gemba. The craftsperson in Japan, the tradition for centuries of making beautiful things, whether it's food, electronics, apparel, Mm -hmm. automobiles, the craftsperson is at the center of Japanese aspiration. So they view technology as an enabling tool Mm -hmm. to make the craftsperson better. And you learn these things. Yeah, And so, so so, you know, I think they're, sure, they're challenging. I think if you don't construct a company that's curious, uh, we always joke, we say there's a reason we have two ears and one mouth. We (laughs) really try to pay attention to what do these folks care about? What's going to make a difference in their business? And then back to this concept I shared a while ago, manufacturing is truly a global discipline. People around the world think about manufacturing analytically the same way. Culturally, it's a little different, mm-hmm. but that's actually quite straightforward.
0: I have a question for you. I'm going okay. to shift gears completely. Okay, Which is, you're now six years into this proposition. You bet. And you've gone through, what, two rounds, three rounds of financing?
2: Yeah, we just finished a, uh, a B round. And, and yeah, so we're a B moving to C stage series company. Scaling, right?
0: Yeah. How do you think about that in terms of not the financing aspect, but in terms of the growth phase of the Mm. company? So you've, you've got customers, you've got revenues, you're still maybe working on the technology and refinement or beyond that? that? Yep. So what is it? Yeah, Yeah,
2: no, it's really clear. uh, So the people who don't hang out around venture capital companies, the ABC stuff is kind of mysterious. Um, we are a B moving to C company, which, which we think, uh, when applied to us, means the following. We've got product market fit. Um, we have something that people want, that works, that they buy. So now it's about scaling. And really the jump from B to C is, are you a really viable, strong business? Do, can I take out a piece of Excel? And look at what you're doing and love it.
0: Does that mean replicating the selling process? Absolutely. In ex- so it's really focused on marketing and sales at this point?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, that is an excellent way to put it, Doug. It's about repeatable enterprise sale. And let me, each yeah. one of those words is really important. So we chose an enterprise market. There's a lot of huge, massive companies that sell to consumers yeah. or small businesses. And a lot of the SaaS companies have made a ton of money by just having you know, kind of a machine, a ditto machine where you download the software, you're good to go. So we're doing enterprise sales. Uh, This means selling to very large organizations where you've got multiple stakeholders involved. you got to be really good at knowing how to do that, or you'll spin your wheels, as you suggested. It's got to be repeatable. It can't be because our lead seller is so good at this, and he just has in his head what to do, it has to be something we can train a large global sales force on doing. So you got to have a method.
0: So as you look at this progression going from c- having completed a Series B financing, and now you're looking at at some point down the road going to Series C, and it, this doesn't have to be specific to Site Machine, sure. but just generically, is it so. You know, Irina and I have learned that, you know, this this funnel of successful companies, companies that are able to raise successive rounds of financing at ever higher valuations, that funnel narrows very quickly. And the challenges, in fact, get harder. I mean, it's a little bit counterintuitive because the more traction you get in, you're get, you getting, the more of these repeatable sales processes you're effectuating, it actually gets harder to raise money when you raise it it's like there's a big stampede i mean suddenly people are it's like everyone wants to throw money at the company but on the other hand getting there is is it increasingly difficult yeah so is that i mean is that something that you're you're kind of on this 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 uh treadmill not treadmill on this path yeah. where you're basically swinging harder and harder trying to loft the ball over the the outfield fence
2: absolutely we uh so early on in a startup's life, as you well know, the checks are smaller, you're selling the dream, you're selling yeah. the idea, yeah. and people will invest, you know, it's a lot of money, but they'll invest $3, $4, 5000000 It's a vision you're selling. Yeah, yeah. and it's a gamble, <laughs> right? And so then you get to the later stages, and it's about the math, and it's really about do you have repeatability, or are you showing me growth? That's exactly where we are, and... You know, I saw this great stat the other day. One of one of my colleagues, uh, Anthony, we were at a company meeting. He said, "Hey, everybody, I just want to remind you of something. At year 6, 97% of startups have not have not made it." Huh. So, this I think it's daunting. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but you're right. You get to that, you know, okay, so you're in that 3% after year 6. Now you got to really put together your business plan in a way that is credible, exciting, yeah. and and it works. And and yeah, so at this stage, Text good. It works. Now it's about repeatable sales process, and that is just an incredibly uh, – it's funny. Uh, it's hard, exactly as you say. I'll tell you what. Having gone through, is this idea going to work? Are people ready? Can we build it? Can we deliver it? Yeah. I like this challenge. <laughs> it's real. It's really hard. Yeah. But now we're in known territory. It's not – how do I figure out some horrible technology challenge? It's how do we scale a great business? Mm-hmm. I, I like that challenge.
0: So, for people who are now just dialing in, um, our program is Bay Area Ventures. Our guest is John Sobel, the CEO and co founder of Site Machines. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with Irina Yen. And we're having an interesting discussion about a, a company that was first introduced to us a couple years ago by John when you were back in the seed, C- there was Series A rounds right. and tr- struggling and still selling the vision. And today, uh, you've matured, John. You you (laughs) look like it. (laughs) But it's a a completely different story today. Growth um, stage. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's a question. Again, I'm good at shifting the conversation, but I'd like to ask a question. Talking now more about kind of the internal um, management of a company like Site Machines. 60 employees, 10 countries, lots of industries, uh, lots of adaptation to cultures and sector problems and so forth. How uh, I've asked this question before, but I'm expecting an interesting answer from you. When you're hiring people, mm. and you've got main offices in Michigan and here in in the Bay Area, which is that's a whole separate discussion. <laughs> um, how when you hire people, do you think about scale? When you, mm. I'm looking at that's you as kind of the CEO of and co-founder of the company. It's one thing to run a company that's early stage. It's another one that's swinging for the fences, looking at a Series C financing at some point down the road. But now you're hiring people who are fundamental. I mean, I know enough to know that hiring people is always important. And even as you get more mature and you can say the company has been de-risked, the fact is when you're hiring people, you're counting on them to execute on a pretty responsible area of the operation. Mm -hmm. How important is it for a company that's on this growth path when you look across the table, somebody you're going to recruit, How important, do you make an assessment in your mind whether they're, they're good for this growth phase, I'm not going to worry about the future, or do you think I need somebody who is able to adapt to a company that the dynamic is constantly in flux?
2: Oh, it's definitely the second. Um, it is? Uh, yeah, I have a bunch to say about this. I mean, there, there are some people say hire for the next 24 months you know, don't worry about it after that and just get the people you need for today. That's a very common point of view in Silicon Valley. I, I think we think about it a little differently and here's just a couple of related thoughts. The ultimate competitive advantage, the ultimate source of success in any organization, I believe are the people, is the organization. Uh, There's some great thinking, a uh, guy named uh, Patrick Lencioni uh, runs the table group out here and they've written a lot of really um, influential management books. And one of them is called the advantage and the philosophy in the book and his philosophy is the only source of competitive advantage in the end is that you have great people. I believe that. I think that uh, not in any way to disparage, you know, really strong technology competitive moats and things of that nature. I think we've been successful because we're doing stuff with tech that we have yet to see anybody do like us, but over a period of 10 or 15 years and we are trying to build a great company here. You have got to hire incredibly rigorously. and You've got to be thinking about when we're five or ten times the size of this, how's this going to work? So I absolutely uh, uh, follow the second point of view you said. We don't hire uh, just to get the job done today. We're trying to build a, a great organization. And all the things we were just talking about, sensitivity to culture, communicating well, team orientation, commitment to excellence and aspiration, that's all part of the mix. And then... Very rigorous kind of assessment. Uh, our engineers are fantastic. We're just so fortunate. It's been really hard for companies to hire people in Silicon Valley, right. to, to hire engineers. We actually have had a pretty good go of it. I, I think we've had two engineers leave in the last five or six years. Wow, that's and, great. And yeah. the reason they've come, so we don't have all the frills. Uh, it's a nice work environment, but it's not like a lot of startups where they you know, have private chefs come in all the time and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> our engineers love hard problems. They love working with great engineers. They love working with colleagues and peers they admire. And they love being entrusted with something important. They have a real sense of meaning about the work. So I think that um, in our case, given that this is a very demanding market, and, and let's face it, large companies don't want to hire a startup. If, if you're some big multinational company, you don't want to depend on a startup. You want some, some yeah. trusted brand, right, that's been around 100 years. So we have to be so good that they have no choice but to hire us because they need us and they can count on us. And that starts with the people we hire. So we're definitely thinking about long-term here when we do it and we're very careful and I feel very fortunate that we have the team that we do. It's the key to our success.
1: i will just spend a couple minutes on, um, what about the investment side of this space in here? It sounds like it's a pioneering area. You know, it's brand new. You're leading this area. How? What's the investment? Have they caught up? Basically, do they get it?
2: Great Whether question. it's at
1: Silicon Valley here or elsewhere, because manufacturing is not an industry that <laughs> Silicon Valley is traditionally known for. Really understanding, quite frankly. So
2: it's interesting. Um, in 2012, 2013, I think I might have been one of the loneliest entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, it was the height of Twitter and and uh, a lot of the cool stuff that has been happening here. But it was all virtual world stuff and. I would go to friends in the venture industry and say, I got a great idea. And they say, well, John, we love you, but we don't want anything to do with manufacturing. We don't want to touch it. Yeah. It Um, sounds
0: like low margins and no traction. I mean, I had one
2: preeminent Silicon Valley firm say, as a rule, we won't do anything that touches automotive manufacturing. They're too slow. And I went through a real period of introspection and kind of angst. uh, And we would ask ourselves, are we wrong or are they wrong? And -hmm. it's really lonely when you're an entrepreneur and all these people you admire say, I'm not getting involved. Then some really interesting things happened. Um, Companies like GE invested literally billions in this area. GE has invested three or four billion in what they call industrial internet over the last five years. Siemens, IBM, the mightiest uh, industrial corporations are investing massive sums in this area. So the first kind of uh, part of the answer is Corporations around the world. Foxconn announced a $342 million investment in AI. Wow. Foxconn, a month ago. Now, that's no joke. And that's just one company. China is throwing enormous sums. It's their stated purpose to lead AI by 2030. They wanna lead manufacturing. It's called China 2025. They've looked at the global landscape and said, we are going to invest heavily and lead in this area. So ironically, Though we began in an area that was kind of a dark corner for Silicon Valley and not particularly uh, exciting, in the last year or two, dozens of venture firms have contacted us. And, and it's a mixed bag. I mean, I want to be really honest with uh, you guys and your audience. Yeah. You know, a bunch of uh, Silicon Valley investors say, oh, I'm really I'm interested, I'm into this, but they don't have a lot of experience with them. It's hard it's, with this, it's hard for them to do something new. Some are really, really serious about it, the number's growing. There's capital all over the world. There's, uh, there's The corporations um, are investing very heavily, and corporate VC is exploding right now. There's a lot of private equity and venture capital and other geographies, and money is just flowing into this sector mm-hmm. from all over the world. So it's a very interesting time to be an entrepreneur because what you want to do, we've assembled, we've got um, corporate investors from, we've got Mitsui, GE, a German energy company, Eon, um, a large Turkish conglomerate, uh, TechFan Ventures. We've got um, uh, financial investors from the West Coast, Midwest, and East Coast. And we're trying to put people around this company that can have that global perspective. So it's a really interesting time because I think there's a real searching going on in the venture industry right now. Like, what's the next super cycles? Right. What's the set of things? So everybody's looking at cars and thinking about, you know, other industries that are going to be good.
1: That's amazing. It, it, effectively, it sounds like they're not fishing yet in this huge pond, <laughs> and they don't even know no. that they're not fishing in it, but the rest of the world is, so it's kind of theirs to lose. Um, we've been speaking, this. it's gone by really quick. We're out of time, unfortunately. Um, John, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody who's listening, we've been speaking this hour with John Sobel, the CEO and co-founder of Site Machine. Thanks again, John. Um, where can our listeners go to, listen, to learn more about Site Machine and what you guys are doing?
2: Come see us at uh, www.sitemachine.com. Okay. I really appreciate the opportunity, Doug and Irina, to see you again and to be part of your show. Thank you. Yeah, Thank we'll bring you yeah. back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so just ahead, we'll be talking with Tammy Sun, the co-founder and CEO of Carrot Fertility. Uh, they're trying to make fertility benefits cheaper, cheaper and easier for companies. Uh, I'm Doug Collum, here with Irina Yen. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio. Sirius XM Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.